This season of Design Tangents is presented by Genesis. You can learn more about the brand and their vehicles at genesis.com. My name is Georgia Lupi. I am a designer who works with data. I am a partner at Pentagram, um, and I've joined a little over three years ago. And I'm focused on all kind of information design project and data visualizations at Pentagram. I'm Josh Rubin. I'm Evan Ornston, and we're the founders of Cool Hunting. We create original content across many categories, and our work is rooted in creativity and innovation. Design has been a through line for so much of what we've covered on Cool Hunting over the last 20 years. But design isn't just about graphics or architecture or products or interiors. Design, to us, design is an analysis. It's a process. It's a journey. It's a way of thinking and feeling, and it applies to pretty much everything as far as we're concerned. We created Design Tangents to share the kinds of conversations we have with creators, because that through line that Josh just talked about isn't always linear or obvious. Often, we take twists and turns and we go off the rails, and that's where we discover the really good things. We get to talk to some incredible people, and one thing that we've found that's very consistent among them is that they're fueled by this burning curiosity. Today we're talking to Georgia Lupi, and I'm really excited about this conversation because we've known Georgia for a long time and followed her work for even longer and have always been fans of the fact that she brings such a beautiful human touch to data. Georgia Lupi runs a fairly new practice at Pentagram Design Group where she translates data into stories. One of the things I love about Pentagram is that it's the old school for a design studio with multiple partners running different businesses that collaborate together. It was so fun to sit down with Georgia and hear about how she uses data to craft story and also hear about the arc of her career from how she started to what she's up to today at Pentagram, sprinkled in with a few fun anecdotes, including her dating life. Hi, Georgia. Hi, Ivan. And hi, Josh. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Excited to be here. It's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, Josh and I are here at Beacon. Uh, looks like you're maybe in New York. I'm in New York City. I'm in Manhattan in my office right now. We are so grateful that you're taking the time to talk to us today. We've known each other for a long time. We're excited to talk a little bit about your multiple creative inputs that help you output so many different things. This is like the podcast that wrote itself. Giorgio, you're, you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about data that can be received in a more, I don't know, to me in a more emotional and a more heartfelt way. How do you describe what you do as a designer or approach to design? I define myself as a designer whose favorite material to work with is data. I do have a personal obsession with data that I've had for a long time. And by data, I actually mean a way to analyze the world, a way to see our reality, ourselves, our relationships um, through this one subject at a time kind of analysis. So almost like a filter that can help us see things around us better. Virtually every single company, every potential client that I might have, you know, use uses data to make decisions, to monitor strategies. And I really think that designing with data is 
just another way to design. For me, data are like for other designers are images and typography and words. So the storytelling aspect about data is really what I'm obsessed about. To so many creative people, data is so threatening. And yet you you make data fun, which <laughs> is, I think, a pretty heroic achievement. You make data really accessible and, and pique people's curiosity through the ways in which you express data. Well, thank you. I, I hope so. I think for me, um, the most important thing is to make people relate to any topic that, you know, I'm talking about through data. I think I'm pretty lucky as a designer because data for me is also a way to access content, to access, to access story, and hopefully, again, to relate the story through visual expressions to readers or visitors of an exhibition or users, for lack of a better word, of whatever kind of like digital experience. Um, and the power that the the design has to make things friendly and engaging, I think is extraordinary. And uh, the power that design has also to make people understand data, relate to data and not be scared of data, I think is really incredible. But fundamentally, I think even um, we probably have to become a little more data literate as a society. I kind of like this idea of learning to speak data and speaking data as something that, you know, we should all know, like we know English as my second language language, for example, or we know how to speak the language of a computer pretty much. Talking about humanizing data in a way that's accessible to more people. Yeah, I really like to start from the basics. Primarily data, all kind of data is human made, because even if it comes from a sensor, well, a human being designed the sensor and decided what to collect and what to leave out. Because if we go to the basics, data is nothing else than ab an abstraction of reality that we humans created because we couldn't store life on a hard drive. And so it's really a way for us to record facts, activities, transactions, and when we go to the more qualitative aspects of it, even stories. We all also as human beings want to measure ourselves, to count things, to keep track of things, to see when we fit into like a big collective group. I mean, that is collecting data to me. Of course, then what technology can do is amplifying and giving us so many more layers that we can collect about data. But I think it really, um, it matters to remind people the data is primarily human-made. Can you explain data humanism? Data humanism to me is my way to always reconnect numbers to what they stand for, which are our lives. And most of the times when we focus on the numbers only, the technology around the numbers, the algorithm that guides the way that we analyze the numbers, we miss what really the number represents. And I do think that, you know, from a designer perspective, that is also a design problem because um, there are so many different stories within data, but we tend to, I mean, I don't do it in my practice, but um, sometimes we really see them represented all at the same time. We have those bar charts and pie charts that represent completely different stories, completely different messages, values, issues, matters, but we all cram them into the same visual model. So from design perspective, data humanism for me means also designing unique way to represent the stories at hand. That's really a hallmark of my practice. To me, the humanism is, is very much in the presentation and the way you are visualizing data pulls me in and makes me start to ask questions and try to figure out what I'm looking at. I'm sort of in that description, drawing a hard line between the information that is the data and the visualization as the humanism. 
Would you agree with that? Or is there an element of humanism that comes into figuring out how to look at the data in the first place? I mean, I think this is spot on. To me, it's both. For sure, the visual aspect of it is what, you know, gets people in and to your point, gets people to ask themselves questions to almost want to solve the puzzle and understand what it is about. So I think in general, the output that in this case is the um, visual aspect of it is static visualization, an exhibition, a data visualization that is on a piece of fabric or anything is what gets people in. But to me, the humanity in data um, is really also much more related to how you actually either call collect data and put them together in a story or how you decide to actually be transparent about what are the data in there? What are the missing data points? What are the things that we actually don't know? We should treat them as data points. And so all of the context and the framing around what sometimes get overly simplified in the data world, uh, to me, add as much um, humanity um, in a way than the visual representation of it. Data is primarily a start of a conversation. You look at data and you ask yourself questions. You want to understand more. You get curious about a topic. You want to ask yourself why and how is this data being collected? Um, and to me, this is part of like how it would be to have a, a data a literate population and to have everybody learn how to speak data, which is really primarily questioning where data come from, how this, it has been collected and looking at data as a beginning of a conversation. Um, I was reading in an interview that you gave previously, you were talking about as a young child, you would kind of collect different things and organize them and uh, make notes about them and share that with people in your family. And also draw on the walls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> it all comes back. Totally. And obviously, even though you went to school for architecture um, and then later got your PhD in design, that thread is kind of carried through. Like there's got to be ways in which that innate desire as a child to find a way to explain the world around you was something that was formed really early on. Yeah, I mean, this is a super interesting way to put it. Uh, yeah, when I was a, a, a child, I I took so much pleasure in organizing things visually, in having like rules for myself. I always make this example because I think it's a pretty telling. I spent a lot of time on my grandmother's tailor shop. She was a seamstress. And every day I would take all of her buttons, threads, ribbons, and organize them on the table according to different rules. One day was the size. One day was the colors. One day was if a button had one hole or two holes. And then, you know, drawing as many kids. I, I, I drew a lot. I drew all the time. Uh, back in Italy, I didn't even know that data visualization was a thing. And architecture was my way almost to not decide because, you know, on one side, <laughs> I was intrigued by engineering aspects and, you know, maybe going into math university. On the other end, I really wanted to do fine art. So what do I do to combine the two? At the time, architecture felt a way to almost postpone my decision. But I'm really glad that, you know, um, I, I went through that path because I think even my aesthetics today uh, and the way that I work visually is very influenced by all those years spent manually drawing floor plans, but also having to have a knowledge about the structure behind it. But ultimately, you do express yourself creatively while composing a floor plan of a building or thinking about how people will leave the space. Um, just the forces that keep me going in a way. And, and that's a really unique gift that you've accessed 
to hone professionally. Probably it's also about, you know, the way that I started. After studying architecture, I started to be really intrigued in urban mapping and cartography and, again, telling stories about, say, your urban environment um, through this abstracted, like, layer of mapping in a way, which in and of itself is an information design system. And a couple of years after I, um, you know, finished my studies, I started to work with um, another couple of people in Italy. One was a sociologist and one was a like an industrial designer in a way. And we um, went together and formed a company that is still long lasting. His name is Acura. But what I find interesting is that when I started to work on data visualization, my daily partner to work with was a sociologist. And so we really came to data from a storytelling perspective, from a qualitative aspect. And in the beginning of my experience working as a data visualization designer, we didn't have anybody in the company who could code. So we didn't have shortcuts to just, you know, pull up a data set and make an out of the box fancy chart. We really needed to do everything manually. And I think that my approach, both to the data presentation, data collection and data analysis, um, as much as right now I work with software developers and I do things digitally all the time, still comes from this very analog, story-driven way of approaching data. So you mentioned Accurat, which is A-C-C-U-R-A-T dot I-T, which is based in Milan, has an office in New York. And that led you, I guess, ultimately to becoming one of the newer partners in in a new kind of discipline or offering at Pentagram. Yes, um, I became a partner at Pentagram in 2019 after eight or nine years that I had been, um, you know, directing together with two partners, Accurate. And Accurate, again, still is up and running and and they're really great. Um, I was excited to join Pentagram in a way to almost broaden my way of working with data. Again, Pentagram is traditionally known for brand identity design, for creating brand expressions to graphic design, more traditional type of graphic design applied to product campaigns and spaces. And I was really intrigued to add the language of data to, um, you know, the ways that a designer can help a brand express their values, their mission, not really even as the, oh, Georgia is the partner who is specializing in data visualization, but more as in data is one of the languages right now that every single client of Pentagram potentially can have and speak. There's so much that even, you know, in designing a brand identity um, can be extended into the way that people work with data. You can brand the way that companies present data, creating their unique signature uh, that is not only a stylization of a chart, but it's really like helping them, as we spoke about before, in terms of like data humanism and really guiding them in how data can totally be part of their communication. Uh, So that's very exciting for me, especially right now, and really being at the intersection of data, design, and brand branding in 2022 feels pretty exciting, especially, um, you know, there's something that happened in our lives in 2019, which is the COVID pandemic started. And I think as much as it was really a collective traumatic event, I think it changed our relationship as a population with data forever. Clearly, we passed from a population where only a few of us really cared about data to a population where every single day, every one of us would wake up and look at charts and maps to make decision on what to do in the pandemic, whether to go out with a mask, whether to stay in, uh, looking at numbers of cases, looking at those maps. And I think that um, really made everybody aware of how data is ever present and important in our lives. So I think it's really intriguing to uh, thinking about what's the next chapter 
after after this sort of like data um, hangover that we've had. Listeners can go to your website, which is georgialupi.com, G-I-O-R-G-I-A-L-U-P-I.com. And there's a whole section there called Happy Data, um, which you say is hopeful views of the world through data and drawings and kind of is your diary or your journal of the intersection of the pandemic and data, I guess. It was a way for me and my team to, first of all, you know, start to ourselves make sense of what was going on. But after the first few weeks, and though that was April 2020, 2020, we were still all at home looking at the world through our windows. And I think all of us in that desperate moment, we're in search of happy data, in search of positive things that were happening in the world, um, not, of course, to diminish the gravity and the seriousness of the pandemic, but to help us give us a perspective of what, you know, can still be good in the world. And so we started to look for um, positive data sources, such as all of the people who volunteered, for example, to help the healthcare system in New York or the positive impact of our environment of not having, you know, all of those cars and, and pollution going around and many more. And every day we would draw like hand drawn these little data sets on top of pictures like um, that we took from our windows and really trying to match what we were seeing on the outside visually with a sort of like a very easy data chart. We've asked people at Pentagram and our friends to take photos, um, you know, from their apartment to the outside windows. So it was really this sort of like collective, um, you know, dreaming of of the outside with positive data and it got pretty viral i think it's because we were in need of um you know some positive reassurance but also for the simplicity in a way uh, of the concept really just drawing on top of windows like we were all kind of like dreaming to do in a way our partner for design tangents is genesis the luxury korean automaker let's be honest A lot of sponsored episodes sound like commercials, and we're incredibly pleased that our conversation with Luke Donkerwalk and Sang-Yup Lee, the creative visionaries at Genesis, was so insightful and engaging. We learned a lot about their approach to design innovation and what defines one of the core principles, which is being distinctly Korean. They've done so much so quickly to build the brand and design an entire lineup of gorgeous cars. We've seen their work, we know their hand, and we're really impressed and happy to have learned more about the brand and their vision for it. Listen to our episode with them in our season one lineup. And if you want to learn more about the brand and their cars, visit Genesis.com. I want to shift a little bit. This show is called Design Tangents because we love when you're, you're focused so linearly and you're not getting there and then something takes you in a new direction and that new direction actually is, is the beginning of a really exciting idea. Often we think of data as, as so linear. Insights are surfaced from data all the time. I'd love to hear your thoughts or your, your reaction to this, this idea of finding tangents in data. Absolutely. I think I probably take tangents every day in my work with data uh, because, you know, there's only so much that you can know before you dig into the data, before you actually maybe even keep collecting data to add more to the story, to understand the context. You might have a hunch. I mean, 
hopefully, usually you do have a hunch on why you're interested in that data, whether you're a client or whether it's like a self-initiated project. But the most intriguing aspect for me is actually the learning path of, you know, you start with, say, like maybe a smaller data set, and then you start to add and understand how context play a role. And then you also start to kind of like visualize it and you see that there's an outlier, you see there's something there that you haven't explored yet so much. And then you go back to a data collection in a way. And that's very much of my process and my process with my team, our data visualizations projects tend to, the output tend to be pretty dense because the more that we dig into, the more we almost like need to take tangents to understand more. And I don't know why, but you made me think about one conversation that we had, you know, maybe a year ago, a couple of years ago, when we were talking about your anniversary and what you have been doing for a while. And what I really like, I think, I think it was you, Josh, or maybe I don't remember who of you said that we are similar because what we do in a way is actually seeing patterns which I think is pretty telling. You know, what I think I, I do, what I want to do is on every single data set, like seeing a pattern, seeing something that is worth exploring, actually. So again, a start of a conversation, not necessarily the end of it, and then to keep going. And I feel, I don't know, I'm very much intrigued of about your way of actually looking at trends and things that are happening and things that are starting and looking back and looking forward. I mean, I think the process, not that I want to say that we do the same thing, but it's somehow similar, right? Like the more we talk, the more it's like, oh, we should really be working together because yeah. our work in terms of pattern matching and seeing different phenomena emerging for us is entirely qualitative, but we're not very good at backing up <laughs> our, our, our research, our reporting and our insights with data, honestly. Even if I'm obsessed with data, I don't think that data is necessarily always the answer. And on the other end... I'm, you know, kind of like even contradicting myself saying that I kind of feel that you're working with data, even if you don't know that you're working with data, because ultimately, what do you do? You have like a list of things and you see them together and they're like, you know, some sort of like quantitative anchoring for a so much more important qualitative analysis. But even the, the, like, like the narrowing down of whatever kind of like process, I think it's working with data with an invisible layer of data that you're able to put together if you have a data mindset in a way. Literally, there are moments when we see something, and at least for me, my brain visualizes it with kind of a halo around it. It's kind of illuminates something. Right. And I think you probably experience a similar thing when you're looking at these collections of data. They, they, they just stand out to you in a way that maybe wouldn't happen to most people just looking at that same data set. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really part of the fun. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot that just even practice and training can, you know, do to your brain to help see those patterns and see those things that stand out even more. But I think what I love about my work is that for every single project, there is that like haha moment that it's not only about, oh, I crafted that poster in a way that feels right. It's no, like I kind of really found what's important to say. And like, I've been looking for it. I know that it was there, but then it kind of stands out. Um, Mm -hmm. And and to make it even more relatable, I um I have the luck to have been working with Paola Antonelli, who's the senior curator for design and architecture at MoMA. And I think her mind is so brilliant because she is the fastest 
person, like the fastest brain to work with data, even though she wouldn't admit that she worked with data. She had like huge lists, list of objects, list of things. And then mentally at some point, she kind of like narrows it down to a point where the show makes an incredible sense altogether. But like if I had to do that, I would kind of like have to categorize every single object. What is its meaning? Why is it relevant? What does it mean for this exhibition? And then I'll start ruling out things. And I think she almost like has a shortcut where she sees things in, in, in a data way, even without knowing it. Going back to tangents a little bit, you described yourself as, quote, boring. And I think there's something really kind of fun about that. I also personally think that I'm just like a very obsessive person. And so that's why that doesn't really make me compelling to my eyes. It's just the way that I work. And I, you know, when, when you then you turn 40 or like even like earlier 30, you just accept it as fun. It's like a quirky thing. But I remember like, you know, when I was younger, it felt like, wow, I'm like different. I'm like really not fitting in here. People don't think like I think. And so, you know, when you're younger, it sort of almost feels like a problem. Uh, but no, but I'm so obsessed with data collection that, I mean, I've worked on this like labor intensive project called year data for one year when I've collected together with Stephanie Pazovic, my collaborator, every week we would collect like a full week of personal data with a lot of context and, you know, work on this very manual process of sharing it with each other. But in general, I do collect data about everything. I mean, even when after a 10 year long relationship, I started to date again, I needed to collect data about it, like to keep myself sane, to like feel that I have a semblance of control. And so I sort of like started a spreadsheet with all of the things that were happening in different dates and, you know, my expectations. I mean, if that's not nerd, I mean, it's really nerd, even the most romantic, poetic thing in the world. I need to just like pare it down to, to, to data in a way. Are you attracted to people who also care about data or are you attracted to people who are kind of like a, like a counterbalance? My current partner, his name is Aaron. Uh, we've been together for like almost three years at this point, um, is the complete opposite to the point. I mean, he's an artist, has been working also in the restaurant industry to the point that he doesn't own a computer. Like he's never owned a computer. I'm like, he does his taxes on his phone, like pretty much. <laughs> And also, he cannot remember a date, cannot remember a number. It's absolutely mm-hmm. these like completely wild, creative mind without any structure. And um, you know, it's pretty interesting because now my relationship with him is is very different, and I'm learning. Um, also, the beauty of probably sometimes being a bit more open. Um, so it's fun. I had you know both experiences. I think that I am attracted to people that think differently than me, but that they understand the way that I think. So, you know, don't have to be the same, but really, I mean, at least appreciate that there's there's a value to the, the way that I think. Was that like an awkward first date? I don't think that we got there in the first date, but um, I think we pretty much like right away, like understood our differences, but, you know, we kept going and, you know, it, it kind of worked out. But at some point I revealed uh, after we've been dating for a while or like say for you know at least in the beginning when he was like okay we're, we're actually really doing it I said to him you ruined my spreadsheet and it's like <laughs> what are you talking about and I was like you know right now I, I'm stuck with you <laughs> and so then I kind of like just shared that I was actually kind of collecting data <laughs> uh, that's wonderful I love that you do work a lot you are very focused you're very productive you're very organized But what are things that interest you or that you spend mental time or brain time um, doing or thinking about? 
it has changed in the past years. I have been, um, you know, I used to have like a very regular yoga practice that like kept me balanced and, um, you know, really kind of like every day for years. Hopefully, like I feel that 2023 could be the way that I'll go back to that. Um, but I think, you know, when I started to feel that I couldn't do like physical activities anymore, I started to meditate. It's something that it's not easy for me because I, you know, even almost would like to take notes about things that are in my thoughts. And then I'm realizing, well, no, you're not even supposed to have a thought right now. And so, but, you know, I think it's it's helpful to start and do it. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that I like the most about New York, of course, it's the amount of visual culture there is around you. And so, you know, going to galleries and museums, even not necessarily of exhibitions that I'm interested in is always a source of inspiration. And so I think that to me, um, I don't know, you, you, you might not have been, asking about inspirations necessarily but i think like to me new york i'm still in the after 10 years still in the honeymoon phase with new york and i still find it incredibly inspiring for um again all the culture that you can access um i'm also like always very inspired by music in a way i've i know how to read scores and music i used to play the piano in a very amatorial way so nothing professional i think in a way what i'm saying is i'm sure interested in any visual inspiration but also in systems and things that are already kind of like systemic and even yoga to me was a pretty disciplined way of moving my body and connecting my mind with my body. So I kind of feel that there's a thread to all of that. You mentioned music and that reminded me of an Instagram post of yours. It's a set of tiles that are data visualizations of Chopin's 24 preludes. So in your post, you talk about, you know, more to come. Here we are about a year later. Is there anything that you can share with us about what's going on? Yes, the project, which is a collaboration with uh, a cement company, a really amazing, um, you know, cement company based in Mallorca called Hugh J, spelled H-U-G-U-E-T. And the collection of tile has been launched at the London Design Festival at the end of September. So it's finally out. And it is a collaboration between uh, some of us newer partners at Pentagram. So myself, my partner, Matt Willey, and other partners in London that have been joined in the past few years and the company where uh, they do stunning work, really handmade tiles and, um, you know, ceramic materials of all kinds. And every year they have a special collection like Herzog and de Moran designed one. And for the 2021-2022, they asked us partners to come up with a specific collection. And I mean, we were asked to design tiles. And of course, with my team, we looked into stories and data. And we learned that uh, Chopin, um, like over, of course, um, almost 200 years ago, uh, composed his most uh, 24 famous preludes in Mallorca while he was in exile there and while he spent some time there. And so we thought, what an interesting, you know, combination of a story. And we thought to design a system of 24 tiles where each one of them actually represents one of the preludes. And we analyze, um, you know, information such as the length of the prelude, the tempo, the range of the keynotes, but also the type of melody. Was it an allegro? Was it something, you know, of a different vibe? And on and on. And so every tile it's really the rep the visual representation of a prelude. Hopefully they also look like beautiful tiles and, um, you know, but, but, but there's an interesting story behind it. I, I love the way you can look to all kinds of information. Music is also about information, right? And you find really interesting ways to bring them to life and, and communicate them. I mean, I love that. I think, um, 
Also, you know, this could have been like a purely graphic design project. Um, and I do think that, you know, even if it's hard to imagine, to me, having the constraint of data, having the numbers and the categories given by data, it's such a creative asset. I do feel that those data constraints are, you know, the sort of like help help a designer building their own uh, if this happens in the data set, then I'll do that visually. And I find it like really intriguing for coming up with designs that without data, probably, you know, with a blank page, you wouldn't come up with. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about, Georgia, is the fact that you've written lots of books. Why is it important for you as part of your your, your practice to write books? I think that for me, books are really emo- like ways to set some milestone, like sort of like milestone that you don't get like back from and you just like really keep going. I also still really love the physicality of a, of a book and the beauty of a book. And I think that as much as, you know, for people that might get inspired by books, I mean, as much as we can get inspired digitally by looking at images, collecting things on whatever platform, Pinterest, Instagram, like the kind of inspiration that still comes from like flipping through a book and seeing something and understanding the concept and like putting a post-it on it. It's something I think that creates so much more of an impact on, on, on people. I mean, I was reading even about how you do make memories and you as a human being, um, like really through physical experiences. And so pretty much if you see the same photo on an actually printed book that you're holding and you see it through scrolling on a website, you will be like stuck in your brain so much more if you're actually holding it and seeing it physically. Uh, don't ask me exactly why. It's like brain perception or maybe the mm-hmm. way that we were born, most of us in an analog era and the way that a screen still creates a sort of a difference. And I think as a designer, as moments to, again, crystallize what you've learned and to uh, put out on the world something that is not only about, again, a project that then is lost at the bottom of a website, but can still like leave physically. It's a bit of a narcissistic thing, I guess, to also have it, you know, set in stone. It's a book uh-huh. and, and it's a heavy object. This is Amy Devers, host of Clever. My podcast brings you conversations you're not going to hear anywhere else with the visionaries and creative forces who shape our world and culture. It's a compelling mix of raw candor and honest shop talk that reveals the humanity behind the design of the world around us. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Head over to surroundpodcast.com or follow Clever wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as you know, you, we, we were talking earlier about this meeting we had about a year ago where we were talking about our 20th anniversary and f- talking about, is there ways that we could work with you on that? And at the time, we were really focused on talking about that 20 years of work. And the more we dug into that, the more we became less and less interested in the past yeah. and more interested in the future. How are you thinking about the future today? And when I think about data and technology um, AI comes to mind, for example. So how, like, do you ever think about this intersection of AI and data and, and what that potential future might look like? Yeah, I think, you know, especially as a designer right now with tools such as Midjourney and Dali, you can like literally type an idea that you have in your mind. I want a picture of a dog like if Van Gogh depicted it on the moon and in a matter of seconds you have it. And so there's been so many conversation around how this could have 
you know, could be uh, risky for designers who might lose their job. I, I really don't think that that's the case. I mean, there's a lot of conversation, of course, that it's about intention and it's the intention that you have that will always guide a technology and a machine. And I like to see, um, you know, whatever kind of like tool that can come out of generative AI, almost like another member of my team. I mean, we can bounce around kind of like quickly with this other like virtual member of our team and we can prototype things and we can really even get to ideas that we might not even have had. But fundamentally, we humans are the ones that have to input, you know, the prompt for making anything happen. Um, On the other hand, talking about relationship with AI and data, well, if you really, really go at the bottom of it, like AI is data. It's just that data in and on itself, let's say in form of a spreadsheet or whatever archive, it's not actionable um, unless there's, you know, some sort of like algorithm that makes it do something, learn something, create something. So to me, I mean, this is just my view and I have tried to just like make it almost as if I have to explain it to a child. AI, it's more of like a way to make data actionable depending on what you want rather than necessarily something that is distinct to data or, you know, it's, it's to me, it's still the data world. It's just that it's a way to make it actionable. Any new technology feels like, you know, it can jeopardize the like work life of some particular individuals. It can take away jobs. And I think, you know, ultimately, um, you know, after the first bubble of a thing like comes a little down and quiets down, like the human intention, the craft, the design aspect of it just always come back up. It's just that, you know, we have a few more tools to make it um, more useful and to make it faster. So I would like to see these as a positive change in a way where maybe we can even focus on more important design matters rather than just the the technique of creating things. And so, you know, maybe we'll focus about the uh, political impact of data visualization design, how we can help climate things change, how we can, you know, or even like on a brand expression, how we can get to the bottom of what's really important even faster rather than just, you know, always being very lost in the process. Or, you know, we'll we'll learn how to use it. But I'm kind of usually optimistic about anything that can help us um, create more and differently. Because Cool Hunting was born from our desire to archive things that we were inspired by, it's always been a collection of things that we, that we like, that we find interesting. And we tend to be attracted to potential change in culture or a change in process or a change in technology. And those things that we're attracted to, we've learned, are often the early stages of, of patterns that are emerging. And we've had to learn how to harness that insight our process is really always just about finding new stuff and and sharing it. Yeah, obviously we're more informed now. Like you know, we're talking about like our internal database is, is twenty years in has a lot of data sets in it to compare to. And then thinking about trends, I remember so vividly. I, I tr- had the opportunity to travel a lot, you know, in, in high school and in college. And you know, the first time I went to Europe, you know, you saw the way that people dressed, and it was so different. And then maybe a year later, two or three years later what you saw there was happening maybe in New York or Minneapolis or LA or wherever you, you know, you were, it's no longer, Hey, this happened. We saw this in Harajuku. And then three or five years later, it's happening everywhere in the world. It's literally the next day, right? Someone posts something on TikTok um, in Japan. And then the next day it's all over Africa just as quickly. And technology has empowered that. So I try to, it's not struggle, but I'm just trying to like visualize for me, What's that analog in the data world? 
I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated about what you're saying. Um, do you think that the way, like your own definition of what a trend is and how you explain a trend has changed from 20 years ago to now? Because, I mean, you really mentioned like trends are really popping up fast. So I'm kind of like almost wondering, are trends there more fleeting and like quicker or are like some of the things that we see popping up every day, micro trends, part of a bigger trend that has the same definition that had 20 years ago? Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. You know, we're always looking for things that to us are cool and cool is emotional. Cool mm -hmm. is subjective. So what we find cool doesn't necessarily resonate for other people. And as we started being asked more and more and more what makes something cool, we realized that there are kind of three categories of quote-unquote cool. And I think those three categories sort of speak to this trend question as well. The, the, the first category we think about are the classics. You know, these are the things that have just, really held strong for a long time. A, you know, a great example is a Porsche 911. A Levi's jean jacket. Yes. Yeah. These, these classics have, you know, they're, they're classically cool. They stand the test of time and maybe they evolve a little bit here and there, but if you mess with them too much, they break. And then there is the, you know, the flash in the pan. And we're seeing more and more and more of that I think based because of social media and because of technology. But this, the third category, and that's things that are surprisingly cool. And even though there, there are many more of them, I agree with Josh entirely that they still, for us, pretty quickly segregate into these piles. So this cool trend that's happening on, on TikTok today may be around for a week or a month, but then it's going to be like the Macarena, you know, you know, right. hey, that was really popular. And it was at everyone's wedding, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago. You don't really hear about it so much today, but you hear about it constantly for, you know, a period of time. So I do think that things sort themselves into those kinds of categories um, really quickly. But what's interesting about it is that it's the public through social media that's making a lot of those decisions as to which things are, are more classic, so to speak and which things are maybe more temporary or hot for today or just funny to share. That's fascinating. Now I want to ask you a lot of questions. <laughs> it's amazing. And I mean, again, like tie, tying it back to data, to me, you do work with data all the time. You start to see a thing and then you recognize a similarity to that thing into something else you see. You start to seeing it in another thing. And so you're like you selectively collect these three points and you analyze them to understand what do they have in common. Even if your gut tells you, oh, my God, this is really cool. Then you see it again and you sort of like work with this invisible layer of data. Um, it's fascinating. I, I still think that people like you guys and Paul Antonelli will always have a say like people whose brain is so smart to see those connections um at a broader scale rather than just saying you know this ai this algorithm is feeding me all these like things that are pretty similar and cool i mean i think that is how probably we'll look back at history i know that you're more interested in the future but i think like towards things that like two things that stick in the past and that some sort of like form um a way that we interact with our culture we can we can also build a future a little better so i feel that there's uh, still like a space for all of us <laughs> let's hope i think we have the same appreciation for paula um as you do and to even be mentioned in the same sentence is like you know is a it's big honor an honor um, yeah and, an honor. and i think we are not worthy of that but um 
Thank you for stroking my ego today. Yeah, me too. Always love being able to sit down and, and speak with you. And, and I'm happy that we were able to do that and share it with our audience today. Thank you both. And thanks everybody for listening. It was so fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Design Tangents with Cool Hunting. Make sure you hit the follow button wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Design Tangents is proud to be part of the Surround Podcast Network. You can check out many other amazing design and architecture-related podcasts at surroundpodcasts.com. That's podcasts with an S. We're psyched to partner with the studio by Sandow to make our show possible. Huge thank you to our production team, Samantha Sager, Rob Schulte, Hannah Vitti, and Wise Grisette. Our theme music is by the amazing Matthew Deere. And thank you to Genesis for presenting this debut season. Stay tuned for the next episode of Design Tangents and learn more about us at coolhunting.com. 